0: In the beginning, there was Frank, Dean, Sammy, Peter, and Joey, but if you start or end it with anybody other than Frank, you'd be way off the mark. He was the head rat, and everything revolved around him. From 1957 to 1963, when Kennedy died, Frank Sinatra, born the only child to a tough but fairly well-to-do middle-class family in Hoboken, New Jersey, was the king of showbiz. Nobody, not Elvis, not Bob Hope, not John Wayne or Bing Crosby, even came close. Hoboken, to Frank, growing up, was Guinea town. Italians were Degos, women were dames or broads, Jews were Hymies, and if you needed a favor, you called a friend who was connected, and you stayed friends for life. So it's with the story of the guy who was the undisputed leader and conspirator of the group that we'll begin with in Part 1 of the Rat Pack at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Almost from day one, which was December 12, 1915, Frank Albert Sinatra wanted to sing. But first he had to get through a tough birth, being born at 13.5 pounds and being delivered with forceps, which left him scarred on his left cheek, neck, and ear, with a perforated eardrum to boot. His dad, Marty, owned and operated a speakeasy, as prohibition was still in effect, which was financed by his mom, Dolly, who was as pushy and driven as a broad can get, and tough on her son and only child in some ways, but spoiling him in others. With her profits from the bar, and the money she made from doing $50 abortions as a midwife in the basement of their home in Hoboken, according to unofficial biographer Kitty Wells. Dolly made sure he was well-dressed and had what he wanted. He was terrible at school, very skinny, and had a temper, which, when he was expelled after his first week in high school for rowdiness in 1931, was constantly with him, ready to spring up with the slightest provocation. That first week of high school was the last week of his education. Dolly was immediately on him to find work, but all he wanted to do was play pool and sing at the bars. Dolly and Marty's bar, called Marty O'Brien's, gave him that opportunity. Dolly also hustled up work for Frankie in nearby saloons and restaurants. Soon he was chauffeuring a local trio called the Three Flashes. Fred Tamboro, the group baritone, stated that Frank hung around us like we were gods and admitted that the reason they took him on was because he had his own car and could drive the group around. Very few people had cars in 1936, which were depression years in America. Times were hard. The group, with Frank, passed an audition from Edward Bowes, who had a popular radio show called Major Bowes Amateur Hour Show, and they each earned twelve fifty for the show. That's $12.50, in case you were wondering. And winning first prize for that, which was a six-month contract to perform on stage and radio across the U.S. So they went on that national tour, changing their name to the Hoboken Four, Sinatra being the new fourth member. He quickly became the group's lead singer, and the girls started hanging around Frankie, making the other three much older members resentful. And they started making life difficult for Frankie, who finally got fed up and headed back for New Jersey. In 1938, Frank found work as a singing waiter at a roadhouse called the Rustic Cabin in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, where he was pulling down $15 a week. The roadhouse was connected to WNEW in New York, and he began performing with a group live during the dance parade show, which attracted the attention of band leader Harry James, who had heard Frank on the radio and decided to see his act. He was hustling to find work in those years and was in and out of every radio station and music publishing house in New York and New Jersey. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. He married Nancy Sanicola in February of 1939, whom he had known since 1935, where they had met at the beach where he was staying for the summer with his aunt, and Nancy did the best she could for Frank. But he was mostly gone, on the road, performing. And when he wasn't performing... He was out drinking with his pals. When Harry James signed him, they went on the road and they cut some records. The first one for Frank being From the Bottom of My Heart, followed by All or Nothing at All, which only sold 8,000 copies that year. But Frank was on to something good. Four years later, that same song would sell one million copies when it was re-released. But Frank was becoming frustrated with the Harry James band and wanted more success sooner. Frank had made a good friend, a fellow Sicilian from New Jersey, a big tough guy called Hank Santacola, who could play a mean piano, who had often accompanied Frank at the bars and restaurants when he was working his way up. Santacola had landed a job with Harry James as well, and he tried to persuade Sinatra to stay with the James Band, but on November of 1939, Frank left Harry James to fill Jack Leonard's shoes as lead singer for the Tommy Dorsey Band. Tommy Dorsey had left a note for Frank during a Chicago gig with James's band, asking him to stop by the Palmer House, and Frank did, signing a contract for 125 a week. And when Frank went back and told Harry James, James agreed to release Frank's two-year contract. On January 26, 1940, Sinatra made his first public appearance with the Tommy Dorsey band at the Coronado Theater in Rockford, Illinois, opening the show with the song Stardust. Dorsey would recall later you could almost feel the excitement coming up out of the crowds when the kid stood up to sing. Remember, he was no matinee idol. He was just a skinny kid with big ears. I would stand there so amazed I'd almost forget to take my own solos. But working with Dorsey's band wasn't all lollipops and roses. Buddy Rich, the drummer for Dorsey, had been used to getting a large share of the attention and when Frank arrived, he acted like it naturally should just all revert to him. So the two would fight, and performers for Dorsey's band, like the Pied Pipers and Joe Stafford, were witness to it. Joe Stafford once describing a fight between Buddy and Frank that erupted after Frank's picture replaced that of Buddy's on a promotional poster. Although he definitely was not athletic, Frank could throw things and had a temper, and in one fight, Frank threw a water-filled glass pitcher at Rich, and Buddy ducked just in time, the pitcher just missing his head. Had it hit him, Joe Stafford recalled, it would have killed him. As it was, it left shards of glass in the plaster wall. Although much was made of the two men's dislike for each other, years later, when Buddy was sidelined by disease, Frank sent him $25,000 to help patch him up. Another fight between the two was witnessed by a San Francisco columnist who was there when Buddy had Frank pinned up against the wall with one of his cymbals and Frank was screaming at him. And a lead singer for Dorsey, Connie Haynes, had numerous problems with Sinatra, especially if she tried to share a song with him. He would cut her off, removing the mic from her hands and motion her off the stage. She was being paid to entertain and wasn't going to take it from Frank so she would walk down off the stage to the audience and sing without a mic to the men in the crowd, especially the guys in uniform, and that drove Frank crazy. He got nasty with her, and Dorsey fired him. Frank was replaced for two weeks by a singer named Milburn, who would later go on to take the part of Doc in the TV show Gunsmoke. Frank apologized two weeks later, and Dorsey took him back. Frank worked for Dorsey's band for three years, cutting hit records, appearing in movies, getting voice lessons, which gave him two extra octaves in the high range, and making friends with the press, so that by the time he said goodbye to Tommy and the boys, he was a major star. In his first year with Dorsey, Frank had recorded over 40 songs, such as I'll Never Smile Again, which was the first song that really made Sinatra star, along with Say It and Imagination. And these songs were followed in 1941 and 42 by Night and Day and others. Dorsey liked Sinatra, and he also enjoyed Frank's mom's cooking. So when the band was playing in the Northeast, Dorsey, Frank, and the boys, including Frank's Hoboken buddy and band member Nick Savano, would relax at Dolly's Hoboken home with Italian food. While Dolly would ask questions like, What the F is wrong with you, Frank? You never call me anymore. You're too busy for your mama. And Frank would hang his head and admit that the workload was just too much. Then she would say that was an act and a bunch of BS. Then Dorsey would pile on and tell Frank that he really needed to take more time to be with his family. Although Dolly and Frank's wife Nancy did not get along, it would be hard to picture her not being there with daughter Nancy for these fun fests. Nick Savano was the link between Frank and the band and Dolly. Nick being one of the babies that Dolly had been paid to bring into the world, not usher out. So he might have felt he owed her a debt in that respect. After his 1942 recordings, Frank was convinced he needed to go solo. He wanted to compete with Bing Crosby, who was then at the top, and had owned that spot for years. But he was hampered by his contract with Tommy Dorsey, which gave Dorsey 43% of Sinatra's lifetime earnings in the entertainment industry. A legal battle ensued, which was eventually settled in 1943. Now that Sinatra was getting known, and his life and friends were starting to make the gossip columns, his ties with the mob began to be talked about. Rumors began spreading in the newspapers that Sinatra's godfather, Willie Moretti, had coerced Dorsey to let Sinatra out of his contract for a few thousand dollars by holding a gun to his head. On September 3, 1942, Dorsey bid farewell to Sinatra, reportedly saying, I hope you fall on your ass, and then replacing Sinatra with lead singer Dick Hames. They never did patch up their differences before Dorsey's death in 1956, as one of Dorsey's frequent comments on Frank would reflect when he said, He's the most fascinating man in the world, but don't put your hand in his cage. Frank would never forgive Tommy Dorsey for the fight in court, which resulted in Frank having to pay $7 million for the release of rights. When Dorsey died, and everyone who had ever worked with him sent condolences, there was nothing from Frank. When the band got together years later to do a Remember Tommy Dorsey special, Frank was the only one who didn't show. And three decades later, in 1979, at the Universal Amphitheater in L.A. at a concert, Frank was remembering his early days. And thanked Harry James for giving him a chance and then letting him out of his contract. Then he mentioned Tommy Dorsey and stomping his foot on the stage floor and looking down, as if to indicate that Tommy Dorsey had gone to hell, he asked, Do you hear me, Tommy? You cost me seven million dollars. Do you hear me? You didn't want to get on Frank's bad side. There was rarely any room for forgiveness. In May of 1941, Sinatra was topping all the singer polls in the music magazines, and the teen appeal that followed him became known as Sinatra Mania after his legendary opening at the Paramount Theater in New York on December 30, 1942. When Benny Goodman introduced Frank at the swinging Paramount in Times Square, the crowd went nuts. Teen girls were screaming in their seats, wild-eyed, all wanting to get a piece of Frankie to the point where they were forming clubs with names like the Slaves of Sinatra and the Flatbush Girls who would lay down their lives in parentheses for Sinatra. Bobby Soxers, they were called, and he was their fondest wish. This was 15 years before Elvis, and World War II was raging. According to Frank's daughter, Nancy, Jack Benny once said, I thought the building was going to cave in. I never heard such a commotion. All this for a fellow I never heard of. Sinatra performed for four straight weeks at the Paramount, his act following the Benny Goodman Orchestra, after which his contract was renewed for another four weeks by the owner, Bob Whiteman. Sinatra became known as The Voice, and within weeks, some 1,000 Sinatra fan clubs had been reported across the U.S. Sinatra's publicist, George Evans, encouraged interviews and photographs and stayed busy portraying Frank as a shy, vulnerable Italian-American with a rough childhood who had finally made it good. When Frank returned to the Paramount in 1944, only 250 people left the first show, causing a pileup of fans outside, 35,000 of them, and they caused the near-riot which was later dubbed the Columbus Day Riot because they weren't allowed in. The Bobby Soxers wrote Sinatra song titles on their clothing, bribed hotel maids for an opportunity to touch the bed he slept in, and were constantly grabbing pieces of his clothing, especially his detachable bow ties, which were a prized possession for any young fan. In 1943, Sinatra signed with Columbia Records, which immediately re-released All or Nothing at All, which stayed on the bestseller list for 18 weeks. He was enjoying great success, performing on the radio on Your Hit Parade until December of 1944, and Columbia hired Alex Wilder, as a ranger and conductor, he also hired a vocal group known as the Bobby Tuckett Singers to back Frank. Of the nine songs this combination recorded, seven of them made the bestseller list. That same year, he performed at the Rio Bomba at the New York Waldorf Astoria, which helped to secure his popularity with New York's high Society. At that time, sailing high in his chosen career, he was on top of his idol Bing Crosby in the Billboard List, and on top of all the other popular crooners, including Barry Como, Bob Eberly, and Dick Hames. In 1945 and 46, Frank was busy with politics, being heavily tied with the Democrat Party, and he was appearing everywhere, singing on 160 radio shows, recording 36 times that year at Columbia, and shooting in four films. The films weren't doing that much for him now. His big role as Maggio would come much later. But despite all of what seems to be some pretty hard but true stories about his callous youth, his attitude, and his unstoppable ambition, he could sing, and people loved his voice. By 1946, he was performing on stage up to 45 times a week, singing up to 100 songs a day, and it was only helping his voice get better. He sold 10 million records that year, and he was earning up to $93,000 a week. When he got a part as a priest in the film Miracle of the Bell, his detractors, once they'd stopped laughing, launched articles in the press about the singing priest with the mob connections. And to counter that bit of negative publicity, his agent George Evans suggested he donate $100,000 in wages from the film, which was big money in those days, to the Catholic Church, which Frank did. By the end of 1948, however, Frank began to slip. DownBeats magazine annual poll for that year placed him at number four behind Billy Eckstein, Bing Crosby, and Frankie Lane, whose powerful vocals and recordings like Rawhide and That Lucky Old Son were becoming the stuff of music legend. In 1950, Sinatra's publicist, close friend, and songwriter, previously mentioned, George Evans, died, which put a damper on Sinatra's forward motion. George Evans, at age 48, had aged quickly trying to protect Frank from Frank and had suffered his heart attack one night after arguing with a columnist about Frank and Ava Gardner. That situation being the affair with Ava Gardner, who was a huge star at that time. And that went public and caused a very public divorce from his first wife Nancy in 1950, their marriage being a coffin in the making which the affair had only helped to put the final nail in. That affair, according to Rat Pack confidential author Sean Levy, was, quote, "...about as private as a presidential campaign." Ava was a lioness, and Frank was her plaything. She was as promiscuous, lustful, hard-drinking, and profane as he was, and she had the hooks into him good. She busted his balls mercilessly, running off with bullfighters and making him look like an ass in front of the world. He threatened suicide twice, his disgrace and comeuppance were complete. Not only was he a has-been singer, an actor, and performer, he was a joke. Last year's punchline. End quote. And it was a big fall. Frank had been big. So big that it had gone to his head, and he started abusing the press and the hangers on to the point where once the dam cracked, they weren't going to try too hard to patch it up. For Frank, the only sad part of having millions of teen and preteen fans in the late 30s and mid-40s was that, according to his agent, they all had to be considered off-limits. But he would make up for that by the 50s, when he and his fans got a little older, and he became divorced. What he was doing then was trying to score as many grown women, first on the sly, and then very publicly as he could, and almost always having success, until it came to Ava Gardner. All this was happening while Frank's wife Nancy and his three kids were waiting for Dad to come home to spend a few minutes with them between appearances. And he was even okay if he brought the band with him. At least he was home for a night. The first child, Nancy, was born in 1939. Then came Frankie in 1944. Both would end up behind the microphone years later, despite barely knowing Dad until they were in their 30s. And what a change. In 1939... He was waiting tables between gigs at the Rustic Table for $15 a week, and six years later, by 1945, he was grossing $11 million a year, and he had changed from an aspiring, ambitious, and talented singer to an accomplished and quick-tempered, hard-drinking, hard-partying dick, according to many, at least. By 1949, there were whispers in the press about his ties to crime bosses and communists, And there were constant spats and even fistfights with fans, photographers, waiters. Pick one of dozens of people. According to legend, a badly timed wisecrack about one of MGM owners Louis B. Meyer's mistresses lost him access to Hollywood, at least for a while. He was even losing his singing talent. Maybe it was the booze, or maybe he was just tired. But by 1950, he was divorced, chasing Ava Gardner with no success and shedding fans like an Irish setter sheds hair in the summer. He tried suicide twice, once in Lake Tahoe with pills, and once in New York with a razor. There was always in Frank a looming insecurity and a distaste for being alone. For two years he hung out with the few friends he had left, but still making music. His entourage including Manny Sachs, a Columbia Records executive, Ben Barton, his music publisher and business partner, composer Jimmy Van Heusen, lyricist Sammy Kahn, bruiser and old pal from the neighborhood Tammy Muriello, and you had to be tough for the first name like Tammy, and Al Silvani, and Jimmy Tarantino, a boxing writer whose mob ties would later prove troubles aplenty for Frank. He called this bunch the varsity, and in addition to gigs, they spent lots of time rubbing shoulders with Jimmy's pals at Madison Square Garden, a favorite place for mobsters who made a lot of money betting on long shots, who they somehow knew would win the fight. But when Frank did hit the bottom, and couldn't get a seat at the old restaurants and hangouts, at least not the same seat, and was seen to be wandering Broadway late at night, alone, hands in his pockets, which were starting to empty out, it should be added, that's when the few friends he had shone the brightest. One guy who befriended him was Humphrey Bogart, who was always on the side of the downtrodden, and thought Hollywood, and all of show business for that matter, was too full of high-minded, kiss-ass, snobbish fools. Humphrey Bogart started his life as an Upper West Side sissy boy who made it to Hollywood, and found success playing psychotic gangsters and cold-hearted cynics. And there's never been a character like him since. He and girlfriend-turned-wife Lauren Bacall were to befriend Frank the Winner and Frank the Loser. And it was Bacall who, in 1955 at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, where Frank had taken a bunch of friends to celebrate Noel Coward's opening, gave them their famous nickname. They were all hanging together at ringside in the casino showroom. Frank, Bogey, Judy Garland, actor David Niven, restaurateur Mike Romanoff, Agent Swifty Lazar, and his date, Martha Heyer, Jimmy Van Heusen, Sinatra's band leader, and his date, Angie Dickinson, and a few others, most of them up to their necks in drinks. But Bacall looked them over once and said, You look like a goddamn Rat Pack. And the name stuck. Frank never liked that name, preferring that the press use the clan. But when someone, and maybe that someone was Sammy, said it might not be good press to use the word the clan, with the KKK already going by that moniker, Frank relented. In the days just before Frank's fall from fame... Bogey was already a Hollywood icon. He had met Frank the first time at a Sunset Boulevard restaurant called The Players, where Bogey approached Sinatra and said, I hear you have a voice that makes girls faint. Make me faint. And Sinatra replied, I've taken the week off. From that point on, the two became fast friends, close enough that when Frank moved his family from Toluca Lake to Holmby Hills, it just happened that Bogey lived a few blocks away. Frank spent more time crashing at Bogey's house than at his own, and when he divorced Nancy, he was still over there, which led reporters to asking questions. Bogart and Bacall told him, Frank's a good friend. I think he thinks we're his parents' substitutes. But in 1956, Bogart was diagnosed with throat cancer, and he went downhill fast, finally succumbing on January 14th, 1957. Frank had been comforting Lauren for many of the past months, and when Bogey drew his last breath, Frank was working a club date at the Copa in New York. If you've never seen Bogart or Bacall in a movie, I'm going to recommend a few. These two were Hollywood icons, and they created characters that were bigger than life. Lauren Bacall was named the 20th Greatest Female Star of Classic Hollywood Cinema by the American Film Institute and received an Academy Honorary Award from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in 2009 in recognition of her central place in the golden age of motion pictures. She is still considered by many today to be the leading lady of film noir, her first appearance being with Humphrey Bogart in To Have and Have Not in 1944, then again with Bogart in The Big Sleep, in Dark Passage, and in Key Largo. Some of you might recall her appearance in John Wayne's The Shootist in 1976, that's one of my favorite movies from the Duke. He had asked her personally to take that role, and she was great in it. For Bogart, add the African Queen with Katherine Hepburn to the list above as a must-see or a must-see-again movie. In 1952, Frank started their role. He found his bearings again and started campaigning for a part in a film through Columbia Pictures president Harry Cohn, this having been made possible through Frank's mob connections which came through in the form of Johnny Roselli, their West Coast point man for the Chicago mob. No, it wasn't a horse heading Cone's bed, as was suggested in the movie The Godfather. According to most, it was just a connection. Sinatra got a hearing and landed a part as Maggio in the soon-to-be blockbuster movie From Here to Eternity, and he was a hit. He could act. Who'd have known? Then, with his movie success secured, he headed for Las Vegas, and in 1953 began headlining there, then signed a seven-year contract with Capitol Records, his first session taking place in KHJ Studios at Studio C, Melrose Avenue in L.A., with his pal Axel Stordahl conducting. Axel and Jimmy Van Heusen were partying bachelors who shared an expensive flat in L.A. and threw wild parties when they weren't working, and Frank was a frequent guest. Legend has it, that when Marlene Dietrich, the sulky queen of film, heard about these parties, she attended one, and upon entering and introducing herself, she asked for Frank, then he and she headed straight for the back rooms. On April 30th of 1953, after Frank had returned from two weeks of shooting From Here to Eternity, his first recording session at Capitol featured Nelson Riddle as arranger and conductor, and anyone who knows Frank's music knows Nelson Riddle was a big part of Frank's success for a number of years. Riddle was also Nat King Cole's musical director and had a number of hits on the books. After recording the first song, I've Got the World on a String, Sinatra offered Riddle rare praise, saying, Beautiful. And listening to the playbacks, he couldn't hide his enthusiasm, saying, I'm back, baby, I'm back. Their first album for Capitol featured the memorable songs, A Foggy Day, I Get a Kick Out of You, My Funny Valentine, and They Can't Take That Away From Me, songs that have been included in countless movies and songs that continue to make fans out of every new generation that comes down the pike. Nelson Riddle was once heard to say about Sinatra that he always sang The Lady is a Tramp with particular salaciousness. The song to us, no doubt, recalling the days spent with Sharpies and Frauds in the small-time casinos of New Jersey and New York. By 1959, the Hoboken Kid was back on top, and he was singing the inner soul-wrenching in the wee small hours of the morning, his 1955 hit, better than he had ever done before, but this time, along with a string of hits that were selling in the millions. Now you're getting to know who Frank Sinatra was, which is Rat Pack 101, if you're going to learn what the Rat Pack was all about. In Part 2, next Sunday night, we'll bring you up to speed on the other members, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, Joey Bishop, Peter Lawford, and all the other sub-pack members, from Angie Dickinson to Shirley MacLaine, and Marilyn Monroe to Sam Giancana and JFK, and how they all factored in. We'll bring you up to speed on the movies, the casino appearances, the music, how they played and partied, how they got along, and how they fell apart, and how they left a legacy on the Nevada desert, turning Las Vegas into boomtown. There was Dean, the good-looking guy from Steubenville, Ohio, who never wanted to get his hands dirty, who had the movie star looks, the great voice, and a laid-back attitude that let a determined and hard-driving, ambitious young guy named Jerry Lewis guide him into doing slapstick comedy for ten years before launching his own solo career. There was Sammy, the one-eyed Jewish black guy, who had earned his pay at age six dancing on a soapbox for pennies, and became an incredible singer and stage entertainer, and rarely having a time when he wasn't having to deal with racist taunts from the casino crowds, or hits from the press. There was Peter Lawford, the B actor with the Kennedy Connections, who introduced Frank to John Kennedy, who Frank campaigned for in 1960 and Joey Bishop, the cynical East Coast comic with a plucky, jaded attitude, who Frank liked and who could keep a show going between acts. These guys and dolls, and more, all coming next week. Thanks for sharing this time with us today 1001 Heroes. I want to extend a big thank you to those of you who are joining us as premium members. I hope you're enjoying full access to our deep archives at all three shows, and that our new app, 1001 Stories Network, is making listening easy for you. I've been adding bonus episodes, and I see you've been finding them. I really enjoyed the first Sherlock Holmes story, and I hope you did as well. We're asking all of you who appreciate the work that it takes to create these shows, shows that inform, entertain, educate, and enlighten, to become subscribers to our show for only $2.99 a month. The link is in the show notes here and at www.1001storiespodcast.com, our home webpage. It's the best way to say thank you for the three years we've been doing the 1001 Podcast and guarantee another three years of storytelling and historical sketches. I have so many ideas piled up and buried as notes all around this office here in Virginia Beach where I do these shows that you wouldn't believe it. With regard to actually subscribing to things I like, it's like pulling teeth, I'll admit. So I can understand why only a small percentage of people do it, for little independent projects like mine especially. I'm not Netflix. I did try one of those audio book services once, but it took 14 hours to get through one book, and I was finding that I just didn't have the time. Some listeners have told me they enjoy our shows because they're generally around an hour or less, and that's fine with them. And they write great reviews at iTunes telling me they love our content, the choice of subject matter, the variety of stories, the fact that our content is clean, the human drama, the unknown histories, the people we cover, and the way we tell stories. Not everyone can do this and hold on to and grow audiences for years. In three years now, we have received counting all our 1001 shows. Over 15 million listens in over 170 countries, mostly the U.S., but lots in the U.K., Australia, and Canada as well, plus everywhere else. So, yes, we are different. We work hard to get and keep listeners. I love what I do, and hopefully it shows. I'm asking you to make an exception for us and send your thanks and appreciation our way in the form of a $2.99 a month subscription. Yep, you get a bunch of neat stuff, but most of all, you're telling me thanks for what I do in providing you with these stories. Please see the show notes, get the app with all three shows, and subscribe. To all of you who are already with us, you have my boundless gratitude, and I'll do my best never to disappoint. Thank you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We'll be back soon.